Driven by a relentless passion for improving patient care via the convergence of biology and technology, our next guest has dedicated himself to curating global communities that are positively moving industry forward. Dr. Amir Kalali, co-chair of the Decentralized Trials and Research Alliance and chairman and chief curator of the CNS Summit, joins us to discuss his story career of leading global drug development and healthcare services in the neuroscience industry and how his experiences have propelled his passion for convening other industry-leading pioneers to improve patient care. Join us for this action-packed conversation and call to action as we continue to work together to move the healthcare industry forward. Let's go. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Dr. Kalali, welcome to our podcast. It's a treat to meet up with you today. My pleasure to be here. Well, given your globally recognized leadership as an innovator at the intersection of life sciences and technology, and one of the most masterful conveners of high-impact forums to move industry forward, I'm incredibly excited for our community to get to know you. But before we dive into your story journey, a bit of housekeeping. While listening to any of our episodes, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Lastly, please visit the bottom of the episode notes to connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Clubhouse in order to further the conversations occurring on this podcast. All right, Amir, it's almost time for us to learn more as to why you are driven by relentless passion for improving patient care and how this can be achieved by the convergence of biology and technology. But first, I'm going to randomly select an icebreaker question so we can get to know you. Ooh, we're talking one thing you love to do outside of all of your incredible work to move the healthcare, technology, biology sectors forward. What's that one thing you love to do? Well, if it was only one thing I had to choose from many, I would say the number one would probably be travel. Well, travel is high on my list as well. You have been around the world many times, as I know, and many of our mutual friends know. Why travel? What's the love for it? I know you did a lot for work. We'll be diving into that in just a moment. But what's the love of travel from your perspective? Sure. You know, for 20 or so years, I've been to at least 30 countries a year for both work and personal travel. I think the greatest thing about travel is that it really gives you the humility of realizing where most of the world, kind of what challenges they deal with, meeting other cultures, understanding other cultures. I recommend travel more than anything else, really, for someone's education. And I think it really makes you grateful every day, you know, when when you do that. And uh, I'm very privileged to have been able to do that. And I would continue to do so soon, hopefully. Well, I couldn't agree more. And 30 countries every year, that's incredible. I think I'm about around 30 just in totality, but to do it in a year, that's amazing. Feed Amir, how have you handled it with lockdown over the past 15 months? That must have been tough for you. Actually, not at all. It's interesting. Prior to the pandemic, many people used to always ask me, how can you possibly travel so much? First of all, it was not what I would call ugly travel. It was mainly international, you know, on nice planes. I really didn't consider that a hardship at all. I felt far more people had it much harder. 
I never chose to complain about too much travel. And then after pandemic, after a few months, I would get friends calling and saying, wow, you know, you must be just going up the wall, not traveling. Isn't it terrible? And it really wasn't. I was in San Diego, you know, not a bad place to be stuck. Plus, I got to see my family more. So really, for me, both of those were fine. I think it's more of a stoic attitude in a way towards this. But no, I haven't found lockdown hard at all being at home, and I'll be just as happy traveling in the future. But I just go with the flow. Well said, my friend. Well, speaking of going with the flow, I'm going to put you on the spot. Coming out of the lockdown, pandemic's cooling a bit. What's that one place you want to go to first coming out of the pandemic? There's not one place, honestly, but I would say if I had to kind of think of some places I like, I would say I quite like the Seychelles. There's some wonderful places there. I quite like Switzerland. For cities, I love Barcelona. I'm just giving you random examples here, but love yeah, Barcelona. I also think, you know, I love the people in Thailand and some of the places I've been there. There's never a bad trip to Thailand. So I think once I get going, I already have quite a few trips planned and I think the first in the spring of 2020, I canceled 14 trips just in those couple of first months. There's a lot of trips still in the queue to happen again. Like, for instance, I was due to see the cherry blossoms in Kyoto last April. So I'm hoping to do that in 2022. So plenty of places one could choose from. I love it. I can't wait to get back out there myself. It is a long overdue and I cannot wait to get back to travel. I couldn't agree more with you. To best understand others, I think traveling around the world is one of the best ways to achieve it. Thank you for sharing your love of travel, Amir. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to discussing your relentless passion and pursuits after we get back from thanking our Community Champion sponsor. Located in Denver, Colorado's nationally ranked River North District, Catalyst is a healthcare innovation campus that brings together stakeholders from across the industry to accelerate innovation and drive real, lasting change our nation desperately needs. From established organizations to startups, from accelerators to advocacy organizations, and from medical schools to global companies, everyone at Catalyst works side by side to create, develop, refine, and bring to market cutting edge innovations that will fundamentally transform healthcare as we know it. With industry leaders like Medical Group Management Association, Olive, Medical Solutions, UC Health, Cirrus MD, and many others calling Catalyst home, along with innovative pioneers visiting from across the nation. Catalyst continually fosters their foundational belief that collaboration and partnerships will move the healthcare industry forward. To virtually tour Catalyst and claim your space on campus or host an upcoming event, visit CatalystHealthTech.com or visit the top of the episode notes and click on their link. All right, we are back with Dr. Amir Kalali, one of the world's premier physician scientists leading the intersection of life sciences and technology. Amir, a storied career that you've had. You've been friends to many of us out on the road at different conferences, different summits. You are a creator of community, one of the best out there. But for over 20 years, you were running global clinical trials. Must have been an amazing experience. Give us a little bit of a history lesson of why that experience has really propelled you into today in being that masterful curator of communities. Maybe give us a little bit of that history lesson. Sure, no problem. You know, I trained as a physician in the UK in London and then moved over to California as an academic. And after that, I entered industry over 20 years ago and really overseeing a large number of trials all the time because I was working for the world's largest research company. Based on that, any one time, there was at least two or 300 trials that we were looking after. And that involved 
going to different countries. And at that time, you know, going back 20 years, was really the beginning of the kind of the global expansion of research. So historically, and I think sadly, many drugs were approved based on just average white American kind of patient populations. There really weren't that many trials done overseas. Biggest changes was really the fact that people realized that you really need to have data from each country, all different from a sort of pharmacodynamic point of view. So really understanding dosing in different populations Really, that grew into us having regulatory standard trials being conducted in countries that in some cases had never done clinical trials before. The law of setting up those infrastructure and really training people, et cetera. So that was kind of an interesting couple of decades. I would say the beginning of globalization of clinical trials and certainly taught me a lot about culture, taught me a lot about how to really be at the bleeding edge, as I like call it, of things and how you sometimes bleed when you're at that bleeding edge. But it really was a very interesting kind of insights into our world in research. Now, what I found frustrating, quite frankly, was the lack of coordination and collaboration within industry. I actually started my first nonprofit 19 years ago, and that came out of an encounter actually in an elevator. So I was in a very prestigious academic meeting. And at the time, I used to joke that if the two industry folks were talking during an academic meeting, one was interviewing for a job because there was no other reason for them to talk. They really were very insular, very sort of protective about IP, just didn't talk to each other much. That seems hard to believe now, but that 20 years ago, it really was the case. And I remember at the time I was running every single phase three program in the world in a particular disease state, seven of them. And I got into the elevator from top floor of this hotel at an academic meeting just it, it was quite bizarre that that morning, I guess there was a session on this particular disease state. Everyone was getting into the elevator to go downstairs and every floor would be one of my partners walking in and they were all working on the same disease state, running a phase three, yet none of them knew each other, had talked to each other. And I really found that quite frustrating. So when the elevator came to the bottom, I basically blocked away and said, I don't care what you're doing tonight, we're all having dinner because I believe patients would find it extremely unusual and frustrating to hear that you're not talking to try and learn from each other. And that kind of started my first nonprofit from there and had various iterations we can talk about where the main goal has really been to get companies to collaborate and really use the limited number of dollars that we have to fund research to make sure we're not wasting it and by collaboration really making it much more efficient. Yeah. And you see it time and again, I mean, just pervasive across the healthcare industry, biosciences, life science, pick your poison, right? It's pervasive everywhere. The disconnectedness, the silos, it's just unbelievable. I do have a question. Amir, how did you stay in it so long? You hear about burnout so much in our industries, all the different sectors that touch health, wellness, and healthcare. How did you stay in the game at such a high level for so long? What kept you motivated? I guess you have to think about why do people have burnout? And I know people have actually advocated that you should not use the term burnout, but really moral outrage. You've probably heard that, right? I think one component of that is where people work and whether they feel their work is fulfilling, whether they're really being respected. I think it's very easy to burn out when you're in a kind of toxic environment or an environment doesn't really respect your value. I think the first key is make sure you're not in an environment like that. The second thing is, I think even now people say to me, how do you do so many different things? How do you have the energy? And the only thing I'm put down to is I actually enjoy what I do and I, it's fulfilling to me. If it wasn't, maybe I wouldn't do it. 
that would be my sort of off-the-cuff answer to you. Well, I appreciate it. So let's dive in a little bit now. Current state as well, you really set the stage of this whole notion of being one of the most masterful curator of communities and some of the work you're currently up to to continue to really, again, knock down those silos, break down the disconnectedness and making sure that we're all working together. You are leading the charge on some really exciting initiatives from the CNS Summit to the DTRA, the Decentralized Trials and Research Alliance. Would love to talk more about both of them what you're seeing there, of course, how can we get involved as well? And we'll talk a little bit as well, like future state. What does this work mean that you've been leading? Knocking again, knocking these silos down, getting us all in that same proverbial room, if you will, and working together. What might that mean for a new reality for all of us, future state? But before we go there, Amir, let's talk about some of those current projects you're working on. And then, of course, how we can get involved in them. Sure, absolutely. I mean, maybe we can start with CNS Summit. CNS Summit, the CNS stands for Collaborating for Novel Solutions. And it really came about 12 years ago where I already mentioned the kind of my first nonprofit, which was really actually a small group, it still is, of leaders that meet and really try and help each other. And I really felt that to really have impact, we needed to really have a much bigger environment where the whole ecosystem could be involved. So Summit is a much bigger meeting than my first nonprofit. It really was to bring all the voices in that needed to be there and really try and collaborate together. It's called Collaborating for Novel Solutions. What I will tell you is the first meeting, I had one slide to open the meeting, okay? And it had the three words that we had chosen at the time to represent kind of our goal and our focus. And the three words, which were not overused 20 years ago, like they are now, were collaboration, innovation, and technology. And what I said was, We have chosen these three words, not because we're good at them, but because we're not good at them. And this is what we're going to focus on. So that was really about having an atmosphere where people feel they can collaborate. Many times people in the ecosystem would meet across the table in a bid defense, and everyone had their suits on, everyone had their game face on, and didn't really treat each other as humans. So instead of just talking to each other around the bid defense table, How about we actually treat each other as humans and actually not try and sell straight away and really try and understand the other person and we know what their needs are. So that's kind of some of the core attributes of Summit, which is why people, you know, are so evangelical about it. What's interesting about Summit, I was also frustrated with the range of meetings that were on offer to me as a life science leader. There was academic meetings on the executive of quite a few of those. And they're very appropriate meetings for academic endeavors, disease etiology, et cetera. They're not really focused on industry's issues. Then we have lots, probably hundreds, of commercially driven meetings run by big conglomerates that might do fashion one day, nuclear power stations the next, and life sciences or healthcare the next. They clearly don't have domain expertise. And really, the main goal is you know, profitability, which is perfectly understandable but I don't believe those meetings are really moving the needle. I was really out of my frustration of saying, why can't we have meetings run by leaders for leaders, truly, not a meeting planning company, and where we don't prioritize profitability, we actually prioritize partnership and learning, and that's what we've done with Summit, and that's kind of what's made it so successful. We definitely do things differently to other people. There's many things we don't do on purpose because we believe that sort of really undermines the integrity and people know that if they come, they're not going to be watching main stage where everyone's paid to be on that main stage. 
that the content is really curated to be useful to them. And we do many other things that will take, you know, a whole hour to talk about it, but lots of different things to really create that atmosphere. And it's very kind of difficult to really explain the experience, to be honest with you. And this is what we find all the time, that talking about it never do it justice. And I think most people are used to so many meetings that are not that great. It's hard for them to imagine a community or a meeting that is that much better. And the only way they find out, quite honestly, is to come and experience it for themselves. I think once people come, they become lifers and they continue. It's just getting them to actually take that first step and believe that there can be something better in front of them. That's kind of the story of Summit where we're at. We're planning in-person meeting this November again, and everyone's very much looking forward to that. The other thing I would mention to you is last year, obviously, it was a tough year for meetings. And what really proved to me that we had a community was we didn't launch registration at all last year, the beginning of the pandemic. We chose not to do that. Instead, we were running two weekly calls for everyone to really solve the problems that everyone had in the life science community, trying to get their trials to actually somehow go forward. And it was like running a mini CNS summit every two weeks, a lot of work. It was all database. We really made people aware of what was really happening on the ground and helping, and people really appreciated that. And then we moved to a year-round model where we've had meetings every two weeks, and they've included, obviously, the usual scientific content, but also wine tastings, whiskey tasting, magic shows, you name it. We've done so many fun things to keep people going through the pandemic. So last year was extremely successful for us. And even our main summit, we used lots of interesting software to allow people to do one-on-one and small group networking. So it all went very well. We're very happy for 2020 and really happy to be getting back to in-person in 21 in November. And how does one actually get involved as well? You mentioned it's not just a regular conference, right? Do you have to apply? Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. There's an apply button on CNSSummit.org. And really, we do curate it. So we will ask people how they're going to contribute, what they think they can contribute to the community, what their background is. We just want to make sure it's for the right people. Our goal has never been to have as many people as possible come. That's not our goal at all. We would like the right people, and by that I mean people who really want to change life sciences, and I believe most people do, right? If you're in the life sciences in general, especially if you have a STEM background, you certainly got into it to help others. So I think nobody got into life sciences not to do that. In general, I think people do. I think many people find themselves stuck in large organizations where they maybe feel not as fulfilled as they could be. Maybe they don't feel the leadership is doing the right things. And for us, the fact that you actually we can change those things and kind of working together to do so. So I think as someone who believes they want to do the right thing, they want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to be much more responsive, frankly, to what patients need, right? And how do we do that? That's the type of person we would like. Honestly, most of our growth has been very organic. It's been word of mouth. That's been the biggest way we've grown summer. We don't really have a sales and marketing team, which sounds terrible for a startup. But really, our successes come from word of mouth. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be sharing a bit in regards to how our community can plug in and get a hold of all good things happening over the CNS Summit. One thing that I also love, too, it's when you know you're at a good event with what happens after the event, after you've left wherever you've convened. How has that been for the experience with all of these people that had to take time to apply? They're vested in this. They're there. They head back to their respective homes. How has the pull-through been? post-actual in-person or post-even virtual person. 
What has that been like for the folks that are a part of the summit that pull through down the road after the lights have been proverbially turned off? Sure. Well, certainly since last year, the lights never get turned off. We've been become a true round year community. And the thing we had actually from day one, quite honestly, was our own custom platform for networking. So people could message each other without, even if you didn't have someone's email, if they were in the community, you can reach out to them during the year and people did. That continued. And certainly during 2020, we've actually had the virtual version of our networking events. So in the afternoons, we only have content during the morning. The afternoons are one-to-one meetings, et cetera. That's been going on year-round anyway. In terms of uh, sort of the outcome, we actually measure our success quite literally by the number of partnerships that have happened. I've lost count of the number of things, and I don't know about all of them at all. I think I know a small fraction. But a number of major things that have happened in life sciences because two people actually met at Summit. And also the atmosphere we've created where a lot of people tell me that they find the people who come are much more open to having a conversation than they might be normally. It's just, honestly, I can't tell you how that magic has been created, but it's just from the moment you get there, there's a certain energy there. And if there is a short video of two minutes on the homepage, several people mentioned this, you know, in the video, this is completely unscripted. They feel that energy. They feel the people want to work together. And if you create that atmosphere, I think that's what leads to when the actual summits over, people actually doing the work together between summits. Well, I think you also nail it in your About Us section on the website. I love how you frame it up. And you say, Mary, you said, we believe this mission is our ethical duty to the patients we serve by developing new treatments. I love this notion of the ethical duty, right? You're there for the right reasons to move the opportunities to help the patients you serve. I think it's just brilliant. And interesting, I've argued that for years, that collaboration is our ethical duty. Unfortunately, not everyone agrees with that, either in academia or in pharma. I do believe that if patients knew how much we waste by not collaborating, they would not be happy about it. I definitely personally see it as an ethical issue. Absolutely. Well, and continuing on this notion of collaboration and being an ethical duty, let's turn the gears a bit towards really one of your newest ventures. It's growing rapidly. Holy cow, can't wait for our community to hear about what is happening in the DTRA camp the Decentralized Trials and Research Alliance. Amir, this just started mere months ago and the growth has been explosive, but it even says on your site, you're driving the future of decentralized clinical research through research and collaboration. There it is again. Give us a little bit of that elevator pitch. What's happening in the DTRA camp? Sure. So what happened was actually many people assumed that this was due to the pandemic. It was actually in the planning prior to the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, Everyone in pharma was talking about decentralized clinical trials, and it was the thing to do a pilot on, but no one was really taking the plunge. There were many companies formed that are leading on the startup side. They're really their frustration was they were getting a lot of pilots, but really nothing substantial was really happening. And I'd had discussions with a very good friend of mine, Craig Lipset, who's very well known in the decentralized trial community, because he actually was involved in the very first one at Pfizer. Yes, I think it was 17 years ago, a long time ago. This wasn't new. We got together and really thought my view of this was I could see so much potential, but there was no central hub where people can gather together, set standards. And I've seen this before and I've helped before, where if you're the very nascent part of a whole new wave, you don't even have the basics. You don't even have, we still don't actually for decentralized trials. 
the basic nomenclature, what do we mean by decentralized trial or hybrid trial? Those are not things that even people have agreed upon yet. Those are some of our initial priorities of DTRA. It's to really set those kind of common language and standards, et cetera, that people will want to think about. Those are all things that we're going to be working on DTRA. So prior to the pandemic, we were working on putting this group together. What happened during 2020 was, frankly, everyone was so flooded with work, right? Any of us in life sciences, none of us got any sleep during 2020, frankly. I think I've taken one day off. What that meant was it actually slowed us launching because everyone was too busy actually trying to save their clinical trials. But once we kind of got their attention, you know, later in the year and launched beginning of December, we now, since last December, in just a few months, we've hit 120 organizational members which include the top 20 pharma, CROs, regulators, patient advocacy groups, sites, uh, technology companies, all the big four, all those companies of combo and many others, forming about last count, about 120 for sure. We've also in that time managed to bring all these people together to come up with four priority areas on the website. And those priority areas are now have 12 initiatives that are set under them. And those initiatives have also been identified. And we're about to kick off those 12 initiatives in June. We also have other work that are called collabs that are not official initiatives, but any two member who feels particularly strongly about it can use our sort of templates and our resources to kind of do this. I expect to see over the next year or two, quite a few number of initiatives actually result in tangible benefits across the ecosystem. A lot of the times you hear like new innovations or new movements, people are like, duh, why didn't we do that before? Of course, we always saw that, of course, that should be happening. Why do you think now this has taken such quick flight? Shouldn't this have already been done years ago? Why now? I mean, I think years ago, it really wasn't a thing. I think really what COVID did, as I'm sure you've heard from many people, is kind of accelerated that innovation. You've heard this saying before too, people do the right thing, not when they see the light, but when they feel the heat. I think pre-pandemic, farmers saw the light that there's clearly many, many benefits we can talk about, including inclusion and diversity of patient populations if they were to go to a decentralized model. They certainly had seen the light. The pandemic was feeling the heat. If you talk to any service company, they went from trying to do pilots to every potential customer suddenly coming back saying, that thing we've been talking to you about for three years, let's do it yesterday. That was the experience on the service side. There's no question that the need became very obvious in 2020. I think DTRA was there at the right time. There's no question that most leaders we talked to, no-brainer was the most common response, right? When we said we should do this, it literally took them one second to respond and say, I'm in. That was a good part. And I think we really looked for leaders, not followers. And we really looked for people who wanted to shape it. It really, our leadership council really shapes what we do. So far, we've been very successful at bringing very diverse groups of people with different agendas together and successfully being able to have a common kind of priorities. So exciting and well said, just spot on. It is definitely the time when you start feeling the heat. It's time to go. Let's do this. Well done. It's an incredible, incredible movement you guys are creating. Again, we're going to share more where the community can get plugged in and learn more about the DTRA as well as a CNS Summit in just a moment. But before we go there, Amir, obviously community and collaboration and togetherness is what fuels you, keeps you mission-driven. 
Where do you see your work? Where do you see our industries heading into the future? And especially that you know that these are some of those almost building blocks that we have to have this notion of collaboration together in this community because I'm right there with you. I consider myself a community builder as well. But with all of that and the unique global perspective that you have, where do you see things heading next? What do we need to be mindful of? What do we need to be contemplating given that perspective? Sure. And I think I'll do an analogy. I mean, in the healthcare world, it's all about will the telemedicine sort of rush stick? And there's data around that, whether it has or not, you know, so far. I think in the life sciences, kind of the analogy is decentralized clinical trials and research, because a lot of research isn't clinical trials, right? But that could benefit from decentralized methodologies and helping patients access that, you know, at home. For the future, I think the future is up to us. Whether it's telemedicine or whether it's collaboration, whether it's going to stick and keep going, having been driven by COVID, right? So, I mean, on the pharma side, there's no question there's been more collaboration than ever, right? Just working on COVID-19 by pharma leaders. I mean, I know they have been having regular calls every week. The question is, is that going to stick? And that is, I think, up to leaders like people come to summit to decide whether they're going to push for that and make sure that it sticks. So I think the future needs to be collaborative. I don't think it's really a choice, but it's not assured. Like collaboration isn't just going to happen by some magical other person. So it's really up to us as individuals and leaders in our own organizations to really push for that beyond the silos, not just within the companies, of which obviously there's many, but between companies. So I think the future should definitely, if we want to be successful, has to be collaborative. But we have to assure that by our own efforts, it's just not going to happen on its own. I think despite the fact that we've all been stuck in our own countries, the future will be probably even more global than ever, right, where we're once we're past the pandemic. And I think there's no question about that. I also think we don't really talk about politics, and I don't certainly on social or anywhere else, but I think we also have to remember the importance of democracy. So we have to make sure that our world as a whole is democratic. So there's many countries at the moment that are not. And I think that's a threat to life sciences, to healthcare, to freedom, all those things kind of intertwine. I think the importance of getting that right in the future is very important too. And obviously, we finally have had more attention paid towards diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think that's going to be interesting to watch. Again, people are asking, is this going to stick? Is it not going to stick? And I think whether it does or not really depends, again, on the leadership that we have as individuals in our organizations. If we manage to have diversity of thought, that should help us do a better job innovating, would be my view. Very good perspective, Amir. Thank you for sharing that. But of course, we always want to then flip the script on you as well. And where can we be helping you in your pursuit and your passion to continue to bring all of us around that table, if you will? What is one problem, need, or question that you have that we can be helping you with, Amir? I think in our communities, whether it's Summit or DTRA, we're always looking for change makers who really passionately believe, you know, they want to make sure that we're on the same team doing that. And I think Summit is focused on life sciences. However, obviously, life sciences are within healthcare. And I think many people who have technology certainly would work both in healthcare and life sciences. If people want to get involved in CNS Summit, it's cnsummit.org. There's information there. There's a video that you can look at. I recommend that you know you look at the speaker list from 2020. It's certainly, I think you would recognize most of the people there, really amazing leaders who join us every year. 
And then I would also say DTRA, DTRA.org. Again, a great organization that might be helpful if it's aligned with whatever your organization is doing in terms of decentralized research. And again, it's not just about clinical trials, right? You can think of lots of different research that people are doing that will benefit from decentralized methodologies. I certainly can be found on LinkedIn, and my Twitter handle is my first initial A, Kalali, A-K-A-L-A-L-I, at A Kalali at Twitter. And those are the places you can find me. I think helping us would be just if you're passionate about this and you think these communities might be relevant to you, we welcome people joining because you can't really change things at scale unless you have a large number of people who are in your community. Couldn't agree more, my friend. And we'll leave all those contact points in the episode notes. Simply scroll down into your favorite podcast player and click on through to get a hold of all the initiatives Amir is helping lead. Also, you can head over to our free global online community at passionatepioneers.com. There will be a post for Amir's episode where you can also leave comments, feedback, suggestions, and otherwise, and to get a hold of those links to get a hold of Amir and his team. Amir, thank you so much for sharing all of that. We do have one more segment, and then we're going to get out of here. It's a fill in the blank, one of my favorites. It's, I'm a passionate pioneer because? I would say it is in my DNA. It certainly is, my friend. One of the best curators of community out there. And thank you so much for taking a pit stop to spend time with our community here with this podcast, Amir. Always an honor, always a pleasure. Thank you for all you do. And thank you for taking time to be with our community today. Truly a pleasure, my friend. Mike, it was my pleasure, Mike. And thank you for doing everything you do for your community. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode.